third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Verse 8. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants uh, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just sang that we want you to speak, O Lord. And so we come before you, we open your word, we want your spirit to lead my words so that you are exalted, that you are glorified, your son is magnified. So use our time for your exaltation and for your people's edification. And it's in your son's precious, matchless name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Okay, so our bulletin has been iterated, updated even further. So if I can get you to open up your bulletins and go to the sermon page. For those online, I believe the link is also there. You can access the bulletin and welcome for all that cannot be here. The main idea, the big idea for those that have to leave early, hopefully none of you will be them, is this. The fact that Jesus can transform water into wine for a temporal need is not the point. Rather, this sign and all signs that will follow are attended for the belief in Jesus, a belief which can eternally transform a wretched, rebellious sinner into a glorious saint. And you didn't have to take notes. You're welcome. It's there for you to take home and share with others. The sermon outline is pretty simple. It's an invitation, and we have a problem. And if you flip over, you're going to see a sign and a link. For those that are note takers, points two and three will be substantially longer than one and four, two being the longest. So don't despair. And two, we will get there. An invitation. Before we get to the wedding, we have to go back to the book of John. 
We started this journey 11 weeks ago today. And this is my 10th Sunday. I've had the honor to privilege to preach to you from God's word. 10 times we went through John 1 and the 11th we finished up last week summing up the whole chapter. And so here we are. The disciples are being assembled, but we have to orient our brains to what the book of John is intended to do. John 1 starts with a prologue, which goes John 1 to 1 to 14. And then you have the book of signs, which runs from John 1, 15 to the end of chapter 12. And then we have the book of glory, which goes from John 13 to the end of John 20, followed by the epilogue. And so we are in the book of signs. The book of signs, as it's called, are miracles. Signs is a code name for miracles or a name and substitute of miracles. And the question that I have for you this morning is, why does John use the word sign? So if you're a note taker, I would take that note. Why does John use the word sign? For if you look at most of the other books of the Bible, you will see the word miracles or miraculous signs. But John uses signs constantly. And so the question I've been wrestling with as I've been preparing to preach to you is why? What is John teaching us? What does the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and particularly this word sign mean? And why does he use that? So I want you to keep that in your mind as you go through this sermon, and all of the other signs that will come. So we are in the book of signs. Please open up your Bible to John 2, verse 1. Any good wedding starts with invitations. Point one, an invitation. Underneath there, you'll see supporting scriptures. John one thirty-five is the main one for this point. Look to God's word with me, please. On the third day, let's stop. We didn't get very far. So I have an apology to make to you because I misspoke last week. I said to you that we were on the eve of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. It wasn't true. Actually, we were on the eve of the eve of the eve. On the third day, so let me clarify where I misspeak. It was... Here that we see, the next day was coded all the way leading up to this. But if you look at God's word, it says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Don't you love God's word? The attention to detail is immense. Mary was at the wedding. And as you're going to see in the next verse... There's an invitation which has been extended not just to her, but to the disciples of her son, Jesus. Look down. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so some have speculated, and I think wrongly, that the reason that the wine ran out was because Jesus showed up at the last minute with a whole bunch of people uninvited. And, oh, by the way, we're out of wine now because of my son and his followers that just, but God's word doesn't say that. 
If you look back carefully to chapter 1, there's only five disciples which are actually spoken of. D.A. Carson adds a really helpful comment here. Have you ever wondered why Mary is involved at all in the problem? Here's a question. So it's not her wedding. It's not his wedding. So why is she involved in solving the problem? And so the speculation, and Carson adds here, is there's probably some logical reason why Mary had some responsibility for the organization and the catering issue that has ensued. Hence her attempt to deal with the shortage of wine, which is coming in verse 3. Some have suggested that the reason that the wine ran out, as mentioned, was because of a gaggle of people showing up last minute. Carson disagrees, and I agree with him. No, the five that were mentioned here, if you go back and look carefully to chapter 1, are Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and there's one unnamed disciple. And if you go back to verse 35 in chapter 1, I believe that the unnamed disciple, look with me here to verse 35 in chapter 1. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And you recall, if we look down further, that only one of the two is named. I think the other unnamed disciple is none other than John the Apostle. And so the five that were most likely from all reading and all reputable sources that were beside Jesus Christ are Andrew, Simon, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and John, and Jesus. That's the invitation. Jesus, the five, and his mom. And so we have a problem. We have a real problem. In our culture, weddings last for how long? A few hours, a night, maybe a weekend, some cultures. In the culture back in these days, in this time, in this part of the world, a wedding would last for roughly a week. And so what happens here is we see that the wine has ran out at some point during it. It's not clear when in the wedding, but we know in a shame-based, honor-based culture and society that they're in that this is a big problem, point two. So now we join the feast and let's look to God's word. Verse three, chapter two. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman. Have you ever read that and said, boy, that does not seem respectful? Or is it just me? No? Woman, do you speak that way to your mom? Probably not. If I said that, I'd get Christopher. That's not appropriate. So what's this disrespectful? The root of this word is gunai in Greek. And there is a author, there is a Greek scholar named by the name of Bill Mounts. And Bill, who wrote uh, New Testament learners, which many of us that have studied it in seminaries around the world, uh, says this. Gunai is one of those words which is untranslatable with context. But let me add this. Let me read his words exactly. Occasionally, we find a Greek word or an expression that simply cannot come into English. We want to translate every word, but in some cases, no matter what you choose, 
you create the wrong impression of what is being said. And gunai, or woman, is one of these words. This word is used elsewhere in scripture by Jesus without any negative connotations. Jesus, remember, heals a crippled woman and says to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. Luke 13, verse 12. And there's no getting around the fact that the word use woman sounds impolite to our ears. And yet there's nothing impolite at all in the Greek gunai. After all, this is what Jesus calls his mother. Do you remember from the cross? It's the term that he uses to address the weeping Mary at the, term, at the tomb. So a few translations such as the New Living Translation have tried to smooth this word out. So if anybody here, I won't make you show hands, but if anybody here has the NLT or the New Living Translation, you will see the word dear is added before it. And I think that's an actual editorial error. Some of the translations, in fact, all of the translations excluding that, which include virtually all of the other ones, just simply state woman. A better rendering in modern day terms would be ma'am. We lived in Kentucky, Louisville for a number of years. And this was a term that we heard that was said with affection. And I think that's better to what's actually being said by the word woman here. So that's probably a better rendering. But gunai is appropriate. It's not impolite, and it's, it, but rather it serves, and this is the point. For those that take notes, this is critical. It serves as a way to distance Jesus from his mother. I want to pause there to let this sink in. Jesus uses the term gunai, not Dear mom, mother, but woman, I believe as a way to distance himself, and there's lots, that's the first time I've heard crickets when I preach, by the way, (laughs) just so you know, I've often thought it, but that's the first time I've heard it. So in terms of distancing himself, there is evidence that this is his primary purpose, which is consideration of the cross and the timetable that he's moving towards. Jesus could have used another term for his mother, but he doesn't. Their relationship has fundamentally and forever changed now that Jesus has begun his public ministry. Mary, his mother, is a sinner, just like every one of us, just like everyone else, except Jesus Christ. And she's in need of his help. Help that would only come through a divine act on a divine timetable. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Some of your translations might have the word us. Take a look down in your Bibles. Jesus said to her in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with us? I think a better rendering of the word us is me. It's a possessive pronoun. Many of your other Bibles will actually have translations, will have the word me. Question mark. And why it is connected is what follows. My hour has not yet come. If this was an inclusive term, meaning for the pronoun to be him and his disciples, he would say our hour has not yet come, but he doesn't. He says my hour has not yet come. And so, 
there's something we need to pay attention to this little phrase. In Hebrew, this little idiom actually means this, what to me and to you. Jesus was not being disrespectful, but rather he's come to earth not for what mankind wanted, but Jesus had a single-minded devotion and a focus to accomplish his Father's will. John 4, 34, and 17, 4. Jesus did not come to obey man, even his mother, but his heavenly Father. Yet, Jesus never sinned. God's purposes are eternal. Man's purposes are temporal. Jesus did not come to perform divine signs and miracles to draw crowds. It would have been really easy in this particular miracle if Jesus wanted to grab a crowd that he could have said, okay, everybody gather around. We're going to do something here and we're going to start my public ministry. Jesus' mom turns to him and says, son, we have a problem. And Jesus quietly hears her problem and is obedient. But his obedience is preeminently to his father's plan. And so to honor his mother and to honor his father's will, he has to do something that is done quietly. And we're going to see why. Jesus is far more concerned with the sign being about to perform. In fact, all the signs, but they're to confirm his identity as God. Jesus knows he's on a divine timetable when he says, my hour has not yet come. It's a constant phrase we're going to pick up. Those that have studied John, when I was talking to Fred about this, he said, oh yes, we've studied John before. And I remember my hour has not yet come and it comes again and again and again and again. All the way to, all the way to the night of the upper room. John 12, at the end of 12, Jesus says, my hour has come. So right here is the first time in John we're picking up this little term. And we're going to hear it again. John 5, 28. John 8, 20. It's in your notes. John 12, 23. John 12, 1. John 17, 1. Mankind tries to disrupt the hour, but Jesus is laser focused. He was never to be surprised. Some have said, oh, you know, the cross, maybe this is something he didn't know was coming. He knew it was coming right at the start of his public ministry. And he affirms it. Woman, why do you involve me? Question mark. For my hour has not yet come. There's many events in the next 12 chapters in John's gospel before Jesus would make this statement that the hour of the Son of Man has come. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite self-designation. Jesus was fully aware of his purpose for coming to earth and fully in control of the timing. But Jesus never sinned, as I stated. So we know that distancing himself and refocusing himself from his earthly family to his heavenly father was not sinful, but was godly, necessary, and right. And so 
Jesus distances himself from his family. And we're going to pick it up in the final verse in verse 12 that hangs out there in this little narrative that doesn't seem to make sense where it fits. Remember that later. Despite the mild rebuke by Jesus, we learn in verse 5 that Mary is so confident in his son's ability. Look at to God's word. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Whatever he says to you. She has no idea how he's going to solve the problem. She has no idea, but she knows he can. And that's the point. Jesus could do anything to solve this problem, could he not? But he's going to use the solution to engender belief. And that's the point. Mary presents the problem and then leaves. There's nothing else that says here. She just says, whatever he says, do it. His mother has total confidence in his ability. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speaks about this command in his sermon many years ago on John 2, 1 through 11, on how Christians are to listen to the advice from Mary. Here's the application. He brings up the importance of the balance between God's part and the Christian's part of this command, which he takes the form of his activities being lived out through his people. And for this to be lived out in the Christian life, they must live in obedience to the commands of the Lord. They must listen to his still, small voice and pursue the things which draw them closer to him. Listen carefully to this part. It is through this obedience to the Lord that they will experience him working in their lives and be able to see firsthand his great promises stepping up into new possibilities that he brings. In his sermon, Dr. Jones, not Indiana, encourages believers, that wasn't in my notes, uh, to realize the blessings that come through obeying God and to take the advice of Mary. To hear whatever the Lord says and to respond in a wholehearted and unwavering obedience to him. Doesn't that sound like we should be doing? Whatever he says, do it. Such needed application then, and today for us as believers. As believers at the Church of the Canyons, we affirm that all scripture is God-breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 We know that whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. John 5, 19. Whenever the Father, by the Spirit, 2 Peter 1, 21, was guiding the writing of the Scripture, the will in the heart of the Son was in perfect concert. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 16, 15. Do you know what I just did there? Father, Son, and Spirit are all involved in the creation of the holy, inerrant, infallible Word. Therefore, they hear what Jesus says, and they obey without question. And this is my prayer for us here today. 
starting with myself, and then looking to the elders, caring for you, attending to our life and our godliness firstly. And we as elders at the church want to be not just hearers, but obeyers, which I don't even know if it's a word, but I made it up. It rhymed. Not with just our words, but with God's word. And the instruction that's found within it. So we want to be like these servants in verse 5. We hear and we obey without question. How do we hear God's word today? We can't be there with Jesus at this moment. But we can hear God's word through the totality of his words. All scripture is God-breathed. One more thing under this point. Look down to verse 6. There were six stone water pots sent there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Why does the little phrase for purification exist in verse 6? That's an amazing question. I'm glad you asked. Let me try to answer it. They could have simply said there's six jars which would be used, but no. God's word adds for purification. And I think the point of that is this. Jesus has come, God, the son of man, the son of God, the second person in the Trinity is standing in front of them. And in the past, these pots would have been used in a ceremonial purification rite that would have to be used again and again, very much like the blood on the doorpost that we talked about weeks ago. But what's happening here is we have someone that's going to purify not externally, but internally. And therefore, what's being in the pots is going to be transformed by the word of God. Isn't that fascinating? And so Jesus says to them, as we go on, fill the pots, water pots with water. And so they fill up in verse 7, them up to the brim. This is going to be a cleansing that's going to come in and through the belief in Jesus Christ. Remember the main idea here? Let me repeat it. The fact that Jesus can transform water into wine for a temporal need is not the point. But rather this sign, point three, and all signs to follow are intended for belief in Jesus Christ. A sign. Point three. Verse seven, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some water out now in verse eight and take it to the head waiter. And so they took it to him. Do you notice what just happened? Not only did they do what he said to do, they did it right away. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, bracket, but the servants had drawn the water there new, comma, the head waiter called the bridegroom. Bracket matters, by the way. We'll address that. And he said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This 
beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, which manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Verse seven to eight, Jesus is in full control. Why water? That's the question I wrote in my notes. We know from verse 6 that the jars are meant, as I said, for purification. Jesus did not need water to make wine. Have you ever thought about that? The pause is for effect. No. No, seriously. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus spoke and the world came into existence. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How was creation done ex nihilo, out of nothing? But in this case, Jesus told them to fill it with water. If Jesus wanted, he could have simply said, and by the way, do you know how Jesus makes wine? Wine. Done. That's all he has to do. But he doesn't. All he had to do was say, take those six pots, and by the way, they're already filled with wine. Done. That's all he had to do. But he doesn't. He says, take them, get the servants to fill them with water. They fill them. They're obedient. And they take it to the head waiter. Have you ever thought of the sign this way? And they're surprised, and he's surprised. And it's not just wine. It's really, really, really good wine. Is it harder to turn water into wine or to fill an empty pot? Water takes years to come to fruition through growth, pruning, cultivation, fermentation. But with Jesus, the process is instant from something which did not start with a grape. A miraculous sign indeed. Then why did he make this request? Why did he involve the servants? Let's get curious with God's word. I believe the answer is found in two places. Go back to verse 6 with me. Now there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish custom of purification. Number one, we have what they were intended for, purification. But then I believe the second part of the answer comes from verses 9 through 10, which confirms both the quality of the transformation and the very limited scope of the public awareness of the sign. The head waiters express surprise as to the quality of the wine. Verse 10. For Jesus, it was not only an instantaneous change, but the quality was dramatic in its change. Keep in mind, if the head waiter knew what had happened, the quality would not have been the focus point. If the head waiter, let me repeat that. If the head waiter knew what had just occurred, the quality of the substance would not have been the focal point of what just happened. Verse 10, 9. When the head waiter tasted the wine, which, the water which had become wine, that was not knowledge to him, by the way. And did not know where it came from, but the servants had drawn the water new brackets. Jesus' public ministry was to commence, but not quite yet in a broad public scope. At this particular time, he's obeying his mom, 
He's solving a problem, but he's not looking for the public following that's going to come quite yet. So we have here a select few servants and his disciples. This small but important detail is reinforced by the brackets which state, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The time for the broader public ministry for Jesus was coming soon, but the sign was not meant for the public yet, but only this inner group. His disciples and only the servants who drew the water and his mom knew what was going on. The point was that the sign pointed to his divinity. Verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And here's the whole point. And his disciples believed in him. Can you imagine how the word was going to spread from this moment? Seriously, from this moment. Can you remember what happened at the wedding? At this particular moment, it's, you ever seen the Diet Coke bottle and a peppermint? And you shake it up and it explodes. Explosion's coming. After this moment, you're not turning back. The divine timetable is marching forward. My hour has not yet come. But at this particular juncture, this was done very quietly. Jesus came not to impress the people with his powers for their enjoyment temporally, but rather to elicit faith in him as the son of God, the son of man, the lamb of God who takes away the sin permanently, not temporarily for those who believed in him. Now, some of you may know the book of John really well. And I want you to flip with me to verse 23 in chapter 2. There is the same underlying Greek word which we need to separate the understanding. In verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. Look down to verse 4. But Jesus on, or 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all the men. I'm not going to steal Jeremy's thunder. He's preaching in two weeks on this part of the Bible. Let me just say this. I think there's one small detail in verse 11 that we need to pay careful attention to. Go back to verse 11. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested brackets or comma, excuse me, manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Why do I say this? Traditionally, the word, the root word, when it's belief, if it's salvific, is in a different tense. This is a, I won't bore you with the grammatical details, but the same underlying Greek word in verse 11 is exactly the same in verse 23. But the big difference is the manifestation of his glory. What does that remind you of? Remember last two months, we kept doing a memory verse. Hopefully that was a memory verse that you loved. Look back to John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw what? His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. In verse 11 of chapter 2, this beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And what was the response? And his disciples believed in him. So my best assessment of that little phrase is these are real disciples. I believe in 23 to 25 that the people that expressed their belief, where Jeremy will preach on, was not a real belief. So I think there's a delineation. I think there's a separation. Even though the same word appears in A and B, I think it has a totally different meaning because of the fact that his glory was revealed and his possessive disciples believed in verse 11. The fact that Jesus can transform water into wine for a temporal need is not the point. Rather, this sign and all signs to follow are intended for belief in Jesus, a belief which can eternally transform a wretched, rebellious sinner into a glorious saint. John, the author, you may have noticed, prefers to use the word sign. Remember I said that to you at the beginning. Why? Here's my best effort on this. Signs are significant displays of power by Jesus to point to something beyond themselves. D.A. Carson adds, in relation to signs performed by Jesus, that they point to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. So I believe John uses the word sign because they are a signpost that point to the divine identity of Christ. I believe that he uses this because they are a revelation of the identity, the divine revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ, which are meant to elicit through the manifestation of his glory, faith in him, and thereby that belief creating eternal life. So he uses signs because they point to something greater than what's just happened. And that's exactly why I think in this case, the water isn't the focus, nor the wine, but the one that did it. If you have eyes of faith, a believer in Jesus, this is really, really, really simple, my call to action. Care for people in your neighborhood. Somebody said to me before the service, they took some of the cookies and the goodies to their neighbors and they were so encouraged. I'm glad. I did it to four. I'm going to do it. We're going to bake some. Don and Olivia are going to be baking some other goods and we're going to be delivering those with these. Don't just come with this. Come with something else. Encourage them. Bring them into your home. Bring them for a coffee. Bring some goodies but bring them to our services. For what good is it if their bellies are full for temporal needs, but they die separated from God? If we love the lost, let's evidence it this Christmas season. Let's evidence it in our workplaces. Let's evidence in our neighborhoods and with our families. This Christmas Eve service on the 24th, I want you to invite someone that's a non-Christian to it. It's a candlelight service. It's an easy one to bring to because they're going to even have things like maybe even some kids up here possibly singing. Maybe candlelight. It's a safe place. It's not a Sunday morning. Bring them. Just do it. Hear God's word and obey it.
Seek and save the lost. If you're hearing of Jesus and not a believer, but you have questions, ask us. Real simple. How about that? I hang around outside as long as people will bear talking to me after every service. Don's here. Elders are here. Families are here. We would love to talk to you about it. Something comes up during the week, reach out to us, please. This is a place where we love Christ. We want to talk about him. We want you to love Christ. If you're younger and you have questions, please talk to parents or loved ones, somebody that you know and you trust, and get them to come to us if they have questions because we want to support you in them. If you're watching online and you're not a regular attender of the church and God is moving through the hearing of his word, not mine, let us know. We would love to not only come alongside you, but help you to find a healthy local church for you to worship in in person if you're able. It would be an unspeakable joy to come alongside any of you in these pursuits this Christmas season. What could be more important? Let's not only hear God's word, let's apply it, shall we? One final question remains. Verse 12. What in the world is this verse doing here? Let's look carefully. I've wrestled with this verse more than any other verse in chapter 2 so far. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and he stayed there a few days. What does that have to do with verses 1 through 11? And yet, what does it have to do with verses 13 and following? It's indented in your Bibles, which means often it's the start of a new thought. And I believe this is actually a really critical link, point four. Verse 12 seems not to belong with what goes before or what comes after, and yet forms a linkage that John's going to use through the book of John again and again and again and again and again and again. And let me give you some supporting scriptures that attest to this. John 2, 13, 3, 22, 5, 1, 5, 14, 6, 1, 7, 1. It's in your notes. 11, 7, 11, 11, 19, 28, and 19, 38. After this is the link. Whenever you see after this, stylistically, grammatically, what John is doing is connecting two events, which seems obvious to you, but often this connectivity is used in the divine timetable of the cross. And so what is happening here is a little code and it culminates in John 19:28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things that had been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I'm thirsty. It's the last after this. It's a phrase that John, the author, will use as a linkage in connection to the narrative of his gospel. And in this case, it sets the stage for the trans- transition from the Cana and Galilee to Capernaum. And eventually the arrival at Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. There's no mention of John of the length of time of the interval between the former events. And that's kind of important. Often you have these little markers the day after, the day after, my hour. After this sort of is a phrase where it says it could be a day, it could be longer. 
However, we know that from the other gospels that the movement from Jesus and his family from Nazareth to Capernaum was at the beginning of Jesus' recorded ministry. There is a clue also on the timing in the book of John, John 2.13, which we will unpack next week, Lord willing. There's a Passover of the Jews coming. At the end of 12, we see that the group that made the journey from Cana to Capernaum, estimated, by the way, a 16-mile journey, and they stayed there only a few days. Here's what I want you to pay attention to. Remember I said before he's distancing himself? Look to God's word. Look to 12. After this, he, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Do you catch the comma there? And they stayed there a few days. Three groups of people are present. His mom, his brothers, physical brothers, paternal. Now, that underlying word is actually brothers and sisters. Okay, so this is, in other words, this is my mom, this is my family, and these are my followers. That's what just happened. So the distancing is not only showing up back before when he says, Gunai, he's actually finishing this little phrase but he's showing honor by going back with them and getting ready to start his public ministry. Can you imagine the conversation that must have happened after there? It's not recorded, but certainly that must have been a fascinating little bit of a few days that he had with his mother and his family with his disciples. Can you imagine the elation, the jubilation? Can you imagine the excitement that must have ensued? They just left this thing. And they're in shock of what's just happened. And now they're walking back the conversations that must have ensued, the hearts that must have stirred, the disciples' faith that has now been affirmed back in verse 11, and they believed. The fact that Jesus transforms water into wine for temporal needs is not the point. Rather, this sign and all to follow are intended for belief in Jesus a belief that can eternally transform wretched, rebellious sinners into glorious saints. The time clock for the cross has started. The hour has not yet come. The ministry of Jesus Christ is starting. The public nature is just beginning. And the disciples of Jesus are building. But there are more to be called and to be sent. But for now, we leave this narrative not in amazement of what Jesus did physically, which is truly astounding. But we leave in amazement that he would call and consider us to transform our wretched, rebellious, sinful hearts into glorious saints by his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh, there's so much more in this sign and this miracle that we could dwell on but we want to dwell on simply Christ. Thankfulness to who he is, what he has done, what the signs are intended to do. And we pray for many to come to saving faith through the hearing, the proclamation of your word for your glory. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your will and your plan that has been enacted as we continue to read through John. We just see the depth of your plan. And we marvel at the 
precision of your plan. And we marvel most of all at the willingness, the obedience of your son to sacrifice all in our place as sinners. And we turn that back to you now in praise and our worship.